Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Pythia podcast, where we explore ancient Greek religion, myth, science, and medicine, and the intersection of all of those things. I'm your devoted host, Haley, and I am so excited to be able to explore this topic both academically and practically as someone who has studied ancient Greek civilization, philosophy, and religion at university, but also as someone who practices Hellenistic spirituality. So that is what I am here to do. The ancient Greeks did not care if you worshipped the same gods as them or not. They didn't care if you called her Athena or Isis. And I think we can bring a little bit of that energy into the modern time. If you love this stuff, if you want to learn it, if you want to live it, then this is the place for you. It doesn't matter why you love it or why you live it. Welcome. So first things first, why did I call this the Pythia podcast? Who or what is the Pythia? Where is the Pythia? How do you say Pythia? That's how you say Pythia, by the way. Well, that's how you say Pythia in English. In ancient Greek, it would be Puthia. And we're going to get into why she's called that. But first, I want to get into who she was. So as I've made clear, she was a woman, but she was not one woman. She was many women across centuries. She was a woman who was selected, and we don't really know how or why she was selected, but it was a woman. It was often an older woman. And at some points in history, it actually appears that there may have been three or four Pythia operating at one time. So this woman, the Pythia, was the high priestess at the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. And this was an extraordinarily important sacred site. And not just during this period, which was the 8th century BCE, all the way until about the 4th, almost 5th century CE. So that's a long time that this was the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. But before it was that, it's believed to have been a Mycenaean burial site, which is incredible. And then, in case it wasn't sacred enough, all the way in 4000 BCE, in the Neolithic age, there is also evidence of sacred rituals being performed there. So just bask in that for a second. Like, this place has been sacred for thousands of years, just thousands of years. And with different worshipers too, not one kind. One of the ways the Greeks engaged with this place as a sacred site was through the myth of Zeus and his two eagles. So the myth goes that Zeus sent out his two eagles to find the center of the universe. And they both landed at Mount Parnassus. This temple is located at a cave on Mount Parnassus. So that's one way that it's sacred to the Greeks. There are also some myths that describe this site as being sacred to Gaia, who is essentially Mother Earth. She is Apollo's, I guess, great-grandmother and Zeus's grandmother. And she is Earth personified. Now what she does with this cave is she places a dracon in there. I don't know why, but she does. And this thing is a half female, half snake. You can guess which half, hopefully. Use your imagination. No, don't. She's 
top half female, bottom half snake. And some sources name her Echidna. And Echidna has a partner named Typhoid. He is the titan of storms. He is giant and horrendous and treacherous. And the two of them just, just wreak havoc on humanity. I mean, they are tearing people apart just so that this really lands. So we already have a half woman, half snake who lives in a cave. But then we have the titan of storms who is sometimes depicted as having two serpent legs as tails and a hundred serpent heads for fingers. That's just too many serpents. It's too many serpents in one cave. These guys are just destroying lives left and right and right and left. And to make matters worse, they have a baby or babies if you're reading Hesiod. According to the Homeric hymn, they have Chimera, who is a monster on its own. And according to Hesiod, they have Chimera, Kerberos, Orthos, and Hydra. I don't know if any of those names are familiar to you, but not very cuddly. So this is all in the time of Gaia. And then Apollo is born, and he is a god, and he needs to find a place for his temple. And he's looking far and wide, and he just can't find anywhere. He even lands somewhere that he likes and wants to build a temple, but there's a nymph there who is a little jealous. And so she convinces him to go to this cave. And she doesn't tell him what's waiting there. She just says, oh, Apollo, go to Chrysa and Mount Parnassus. There's a beautiful cave there. You can build your temple there. You'll be the star of the show. So Apollo goes and he does like the cave and he does want to build his temple there. And maybe he just doesn't see and maybe he just doesn't see all of the serpents everywhere. But either way, he wants that cave. Now, in a pretty bold move, Cotton, Apollo decides that his great-grandma cannot have the cave anymore. And her protection is no longer worth anything. So he, I'm not sure if he drives out Typhoeus and Chimera and whatever other little offspring they had waiting there. He doesn't drive Echidna off with the rest of her family, and he also doesn't kill her. Instead, he condemns her to a life spent rotting under the sun and never dying. He specifically says, I'm going to read to you from the Homeric Hymn to Apollo right now. Rot now right here on the man-nourishing earth. You shall not ever again be an evil bane for living men, and will bring to this place unblemished hecatombs. Not shall Typhoeus or ill-famed Chimera ward off woeful death for you. But right here, the black earth and the flaming sun will make you rot. Super chill, right? And exactly what I would want in my temple. A coiled writhing, almost dead, rotting, half-woman, half-snake. But who am I to question Apollo? So he builds his temple right over her rotting corpse. Now, henceforth, Echidna will not be known as Echidna. And instead, she will be known by the name Python, which is the Greek word meaning to rot. Do you see where they're going with this? 
the high priestess of Apollo, who receives prophecies from Apollo in the temple built over the cave with the rotting corpse of the python emitting vapors into the cave is called the Pythia. You may remember that when Apollo found this place, it was not called Delphi. It was called Chrysa. And yet here we are, almost 3,000 years later, calling it the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. And in fact, the city that lays at the feet of Mount Parnassus in Greece is still called Delphi. So where did that come from? I don't know which part of this is my favorite. The aforementioned snake monster people rotting in the sun and emitting hallucinogenic vapors. Or the part where Apollo, when realizing that his temple needs priests, decides to take the form of a dolphin and land on a ship far, far away. I mean, really far away. This ship tries really hard to land like anywhere else. It passes a lot of ports. But Apollo the dolphin just steers it right onto the sand of Chrysa. At this point, he reveals himself to the sailors as being the god Apollo. And he tells them that they will henceforth be known as the Delphinios and the temple, the Delphinium, which is why we get the temple of Apollo at Delphi. Even though there are some incredible myths associated with this temple, it is a very real place and had very real impacts on the ancient Mediterranean world. I mean, the impact that the Pythia and her prophecies had on the ancient Mediterranean world cannot be overstated. Emperors, kings, generals, wealthy men, not so wealthy men, anyone who could make the journey to Delphi, which was a treacherous and often expensive journey, but still, anyone could ask her a question and she would answer, or really, Apollo would answer, which is to say God would answer. She was a direct line between the people and God. Well, almost direct, because her words came out in tongue, and they were then interpreted by the male priests. It was she who made Delphi into a major transcontinental hub that was free of any city-state rulership. So in a way, it was apolitical. And it was purely about this connection to the divine. This temple maintained its sanctity for centuries. And right around the end of the 4th century CE, it was finally destroyed by a Byzantine emperor who outlawed paganism entirely. However, until that point, it had been declining, in part because of the rise of Christianity in the region, but it is also posited that there was an earthquake around that time, which actually closed up the cracks in the earth within the cave that were releasing all of those vapors. And modern geologists have confirmed that right beneath Mount Parnassus, where this cave is, is a major fault line. 
And this corresponds well with the fact that the last prophecy on record as having come from the Pythia at the Temple of Apollo at Delphi was to a Roman emperor, and it essentially says, Our well is dry, and Apollo will no longer speak from this place. All of that is to say that the ancients understood that these vapors were the cause of the prophecies and of the visions, which is not only why they named her the Pythia after the vapors from the rotting python, but it's also why when the vapors stopped, its status as a sacred place ended. The Pythia is not a myth. She was a real woman. She was real women. And yet, her entire existence was determined by this, what we would call a myth. Her life dictated by the magic that she possessed. By some accounts, Pythia were volunteers. And by others, they were enslaved. But what we do know is that this was an immensely important position to hold. She was the confluence of myth and religion and science and humanity. She is my inspiration. And I hope with this podcast, we can explore more of the intersection that she represents. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you so much for listening to this little introduction episode, just letting me get my feet wet as I dive in to this incredible subject. And thank yourself for giving yourself this time to hopefully explore something you are also passionate about. I hope you're passionate about this, because otherwise, what the hell are you doing here? This has been a great first episode for me, and I'm so excited for the next, hopefully just one episode where I'm going to cover the cosmologies, a little bit of the theogenies, so family tree almost of the ancient Greek gods, although that would be impossible to make, and a little bit of the creation stories. Like I said in the trailer, we are not staying here long. So right after that, we are going to get into some of the mystery cults and particularly some of the absolutely wild and admirably creative festivals that many of these mystery cults celebrated. And I do mean wild. So keep listening and we're just going to keep getting deeper and deeper into this. Every first and third Friday, 